this Sunday night, man, we had to move heaven and earth. Because Michael said, hey, I'm coming, but I'm like here for this tiny little window. You leave this week, right? This week you leave. And um, God's opening doors. And then you're going to Finland or you've been in Finland. Or, and anyway, you can tell me all of that stuff. But we had, to, we had no space, so we made space. Sorry, um, Jeff Malcolm. And, uh, you know, we will rebook, we will rebook our, our, our good friend Jeff uh, next year. But I really feel like we want to honor you, Michael and Linda. Those of you who don't know, Michael and Linda, they've been pivotal in a significant move of God that happened in this nation. And we're excited how God is using you in this nation, using you in America, but also using you in nations that are new and fresh around the world. I know you guys got an amazing heart for the Holy Spirit and revival. Can we put our hands together and let's just welcome Michael Livengood as he comes to minister. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Good evening, church. How in the world are you tonight? Psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Somebody said to me one night, they said, I feel sorry for you. I said, why? They said, because you're an evangelist. You have to be in church so many nights a week. And I said, I feel sorry for you. You don't get to. <laughs> you know, what an incredible thing to come together with the people of God and to enjoy the Lord and enjoy each other. Uh, thank you, Jeff Malcolm. <laughs> and, uh, a... Um, I really, my wife and I thought we would be here uh, last Sunday night. That was, we landed in, in Auckland early last Sunday morning and feeling really pretty good. You know, on the flight, I'm thinking, oh, good, we'll get there and have a chance to slip in for the last, you know, the last night of the, of the event with, with Amy. And, and then um, they decided to add five hours to our flights and, and um, took us to Queenstown and, and then to Wellington and, just, I'm glad you, for those who think that traveling is glamorous, <laughs> come and go with us. <laughs> it was, yeah, Linda said 39 hours, and uh, they, they questioned my, uh, in, in Seattle, they questioned our New Zealand residency, and so they weren't sure they'd go let us on the plane because they were questioning that. And I wanted to say that it really doesn't matter. I've also got a U.S. passport. It lets me in there, too. But, uh, and then in Vancouver, the electricity went out. And, uh, and then in Auckland, I've never seen lines that long ever uh, to go through, um, through both baggage and then to go through the, um, you know, whatever it's called, and immigration and stuff. And, uh, and so we missed the flight. And they said, well, uh, we can put you... Uh, so we put you on standby, but there are no flights open the rest of today. And I said, well, that's not really helpful because I have to see, you know, the cardiologist on Monday morning. So we can send you to Queenstown and then from there back into Wellington. And uh, so that added five hours. And so when, once we got in, and by the way, it was, it was a um, typical white knuckle uh, <laughs> improve people's prayer lives type of landing last Sunday afternoon. I've not been in one of those for a while. <laughs> and, uh, 
and it was a quiet as we came in and applause breaking out once we landed and some of you been on some of those flights and and so um, I thought man I, maybe I can close my eyes for a moment and then get up for the evening meeting and I woke up about 14 hours later <laughs> So we, we participated last Sunday night service on Monday as, as we played back the service on Sunday night and enjoyed. Uh, so some of you, I feel like I've seen you because I did. <laughs> you, know, you didn't see me, but I saw you. And, uh, but uh, it's, it's good to, to be in, in the house. By the way, I did see the cardiologist. Uh, some of you, most of you are probably aware that six months ago I had a heart attack, which... Um, I've been saying to people, for all of those young people I worked with for many, many years in youth camps and youth conventions who seriously questioned that I had a heart. <laughs> and they, they really did. Some of them thought I was like, you know, I had young people scared to death of me. And they thought I was like the meanest thing God ever put on the earth. But it was confirmation that I actually have a heart. And, um, and the cardiologist gave us a good report on Monday, said, I don't want to see it for six months. And so, yeah, so we thank the Lord for that. And thank you, you know, for praying with us and for us. And uh, we are on the midst of a crazy schedule. We fly out on Thursday uh, for Taiwan. And that's, um, I, I kept telling Pastor Paul on Tuesday in the staff, and it was his fault. And we were headed to Taiwan a few years ago and kind of wondered why we were going. And they kept prophesying stuff over us. And uh, we were just going to pray. And I wasn't scheduled to speak at anything. I ended up speaking a couple of times. But uh, basically, we just went and prayed. And, uh, but while we were there, I get this tap on the shoulder. And this guy said to me, uh, did you preach uh, for Pastor Ann in Phnom Penh, Cambodia a few years ago? And I said, yeah, that, that was me. And he described my wife. And I said, yeah, that's her. You know, and she really doesn't like when I say this. But he said, your wife, she plays the keyboard and sounds like an angel when she sings. And she hates when I say that. But I said, yeah, that's, uh, that'd be us. And he said, I was on the leadership team of that church. And basically, I guess that weekend changed his life. And uh, he said, I'm married now. I said to a gal here in Taiwan, we planted a church here. And so he made a phone call to Finland and to somebody else who also had been in that church and had married a Finnish girl. And he was in Finland planning a church. And uh, so he said, would you come and would you preach for me in Finland? And um, so I said, sure, why not? Never done that before. <laughs> and uh, so we went to Finland and God turned up. And it's one of those moments uh, you know, I was preaching at the conference, and then they had arranged them for me to preach somewhere else and, uh, this last year. And, and I went in and preached, and, and I, the main thing I was preaching was an international church, but th this second church was Finnish church. And if you're from Finland, please don't be offended with this, but Finnish can be very staunch, individual, Scandinavian type, you know, and, and they're not always a lot of expression on the outside about what's going on on the inside. You know, they're not Irish, 
okay? <laughs> you know, they're not Italian, you know, it's like they're not Latin American, all right? And uh, so, uh, so I am preaching to them, and, and I can't tell if there's anything happening in this thing at all. And I get to the end, and I give this really, really in-your-face confrontive altar call. I mean, just really in your face. For those of you who were, you're old enough that you were here in 2000, and you remember some of those altar calls that scared all of us? Yeah, it was one of those, okay? It was confrontive in your face, and the entire church responded <laughs> with one exception. Everybody else is at the altar, and I'll be honest, I'm thinking to myself, the interpreter did not interpret that right. I don't think they got the emphasis on this thing. I'm thinking, they must think this is for blessing. I'm calling for repentance, you know. And, and I finally turned to the interpreter and said, man, I don't know if I'm getting old or just what, but I'm having a hard time moving. Presence of God was so thick that I literally was having difficulty just moving around. And the interpreter said to me, you're not getting old because I'm feeling that too. And after the meeting, we went to have a bit of fellowship with the pastoral staff, and, and about the only one on the team that spoke English said, wow, wow, wow. How long are you in the nation, and how soon can you come back? So I'm thinking, well, I guess God must have been doing something. And then after the meeting, we got back to Helsinki, and the uh, the pastor of the church there who put the whole thing together said, how'd it go? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I told him what had happened. He looked at me and said, there's some things I did not tell you when I set that up because I didn't tell you that there was some major failure in the leadership level of that church in the area of morals. And uh, I said, I didn't tell you what you were walking into. He said, I think they understood the altar call. He goes, I think God just used you in that place. And so we're not only going back to the same conference, but that church that I preached at is one of a uh, multi-campus thing, and I think I'm preaching at all the campuses this time. And so it's with a certain sense of, you know, God, what is it that you're setting up, you know, in that nation? Uh, I don't really know. I, I, I'll pass this along too quickly. Uh, my wife was sitting on the front row, in, in a couple years ago there, and spirit of intercession just came on her. And, uh, and, and there are some times, you know, that some people get under a certain spirit of intercession, and it's very difficult in some of those moments to pray quietly. And so my wife has learned that when she senses that level, that she finds another place in the building where she can just wail, you know, before the Lord. The problem was there was no other place in the building. <laughs> All the other rooms had people in them. And, uh, and it was pouring down rain. So she could not go outside. And we had no car that she could go sit in. So she's just sitting there on the front row trying not, you know, to make an, a, you know, a public display. And I'm watching this and very much aware I've seen this level of intercession on her in some times with God, what are, what are you doing? And so it's kind of interesting to watch. And then, just to cap it off this year, uh, they had a change at the last, pretty much at the last minute. And one of the meetings we're supposed to do, they had a conflict and said, we need to change the schedule on that. 
So it opened some days up, so I sent a note to a pastor in UK who had asked us to come earlier to preach and it had not worked out. So I sent a note and said, hey, I've got these days open if that's of any value. He wrote me back immediately and said yes. And then he said this. He said, I was praying the other day and the Lord spoke to me and said, Michael Livengood is going to contact you and he's going to tell you has these days available and you are to book those days. I am really curious to see what it is that's going to take place when we, when we get there. So thank you for praying with us and for us. And so, yeah, it's like four nations in six weeks. You know, what idiot booked this, <laughs> you know? And then I realized that would be me. <laughs> and, uh, and so... Uh, Yeah, I, I have this crazy story of sitting in an airport and we were flying from Houston and the ticket said we were going to the Philippines via Singapore. And so I'm sitting in the airport and I hear this guy say behind me, say, now when we land in Moscow. And I said, we land where? <laughs> and so I wandered over to the, uh, to the boarding gate and I said to the people there, I said, uh, where's this plane going? <laughs> You know, if you're getting on a plane, it is helpful to be sure you're on the one going where you <laughs> would like to go. And they said, oh, we're going to Singapore via Moscow. I'm doing what? You know, in my mind, I'm thinking of Indianapolis, Houston, Singapore. No, no, we're going Indianapolis, Houston, Moscow, you know, around the world to Singapore. And I found it was like 12 hours on one leg, an hour and a half on the ground, 12 hours on the next leg. What idiot did this, <laughs> you know? It's like pay attention, live and good, when you're booking tickets. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, I got myself in one of those again, so pray for my wife for strength. <laughs> but we are anticipating. And then for those who have been concerned for me, he said, do you think you're pushing it? And I said, I have booked the next three weeks after that off. Just to rest as we go into the Christmas season in preparation for 2024 and what God's going to do. Well, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And I want to read verses 12 through 17. And then I'll read one verse in, in the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter. And I'm going to read this from the Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible. And if you would not object to standing with me while we read the scripture, I would, I would like to do that. If you are in a position where you can stand. And um, Matthew chapter 21 and beginning in verse 12. And it, it reads this way out of the Holman. Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a, a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting, in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, do you hear 
what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, because today I must stay at your house. Would you pray this with me? Heavenly Father, open my heart that I may hear what you would say to me. Change my life. Make me more like Jesus. In his precious name, amen. You may be seated. Somewhere, my computer has still not figured out that it's in New Zealand. I just got a message that came up and says, your computer is scheduled to go to sleep in 60 seconds. Let's <laughs> shut that off real quick. At least one more time, I, I want to give credit to a friend of mine for this message. Maybe the last time I do, it'll be my message after tonight. <laughs> but uh, when we had gone back stateside, and uh, to see family, especially after the death of my mother, and to go spend some time with uh, my sons and, and uh, other family members. And we finished that up by, we thought we were going to go see uh, some of our intercessors, and uh, they got sick, and my wife got sick, so that didn't happen. But uh, we were in along the Gulf of Mexico, and on Sunday morning, we decided to go to a church pastor by a friend of mine that I've not seen in years. And so I just sent him a note, said, hey, we're going to be, you know, we're going to just pop in for one of the services this morning. And he preached out of this text. And, uh, and he, he preached really a great message. And so I told him, I said, that's a great message. And so I said something afterwards on Facebook about, you know, I just heard a friend of mine preach this great message and I'm going to steal it. <laughs> Which really offended somebody. And they sent me a note and thought it was just totally improper that I would steal somebody's sermon. And so I said, listen, I've been friends a long time with this person, and I, I tagged them so they know that I said it. And they know that I was actually complimenting them when I said that, and I will give them credit for the first couple of times. <laughs> And after that, it'll be my message, <laughs> you, know? you know, it'll be, as I always say, you know, sort of deal. So uh, thank you, Fred, for this, uh, kind of alerting my attention to this. It's a very simple thought. I want to talk about uh, three things that happen when Jesus shows up at church or when Jesus comes to your house. Because he said to Zacchaeus, I, I want to come to your house. And in Matthew, he's just gone to the temple complex. He's just gone to church. And, uh, and I observed, my friend observed, and, and it's going to be my stories, but his outline, that uh, there's some things that happen when Jesus shows up. And so I want you to hear this message tonight from two different but parallel vantage points. There will be a corporate message. Um, when Jesus went to the Jewish church, things happened. Now, I, I understand that 
He's omnipresent. Okay, I understand that. Scripture teaches that. The book of Psalms, chapter 139, where can I go to flee from your presence? Wherever you go, he's already there. Which really complicates stuff for us in revival because we say these things that make no sense theologically like Jesus came. <laughs> he's omnipresent. He was already there. You know, so how does somebody who's already there go somewhere? But we use those expressions because we really can't think of a better way of describing from our vantage point what we experienced. So we say Jesus showed up. We're not saying he wasn't there. We're saying there was a revelation of his presence that we experienced that for us at least was above and beyond normal. He came. And, and when Jesus does that in church, Stuff happens. And we're going to look at some of that. But it not only happens corporately, it happens personally. That when Jesus shows up, whether it's in your personal home or even more directly in your life, stuff happens. And so uh, sometimes you'll hear people say things like this, you know, please don't take this personally. <laughs> Tonight, Ian, I want you to take this very personally. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, that's my intent. I want you to take this personally because there are three things that Jesus in the text, when he showed up, that took place. Now, we understand that the Old Testament, the spiritual life of the nation, was based around the tabernacle. It's based around the temple. They really did not know what it meant to have Jesus in them. You know, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That hadn't happened yet. He had not come yet. And so there were those who the Spirit came upon, but there was not the Spirit flowing within. And they could experience things of the presence of God, but they never really knew what it was to have a Savior come and live inside of them. They were still looking to that day. And so most of their experience spiritually was connected to the tabernacle. Uh, the offerings that they would bring every morning and, and every night and, and, and the whole various. I've been doing a study of them for several years, which has now become way too big. Uh, and, and, and the significance of what was taking place, the, the sin offering and the consecration offerings and the, and the offerings of fellowship and, and worship and, and, and all of that that was taking place. It was, it was something that took place corporately. But we understand that the Old Testament was not the final revelation that we understand in the New Testament that that which was the building moves away from a building and moves to individuals. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, this statement, don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And so we understand that, that Jesus wants to come and live within us. And so there is this corporate thing, places are important to him, but even more significant is that which takes place inside of us on a personal basis. When Jesus goes to his house, things take place. And so in the text that we read this evening, the first thing I want you to notice uh, is when Jesus went to church, 
things got shook up. They got cleaned up. He goes into the house of the Lord, and he comes, and by the way, this is not in my notes. I'll just drop this off. When I was growing up, people would take this passage of Scripture, and they would use it to say things like, you should never have a book table in a church, etc. That's not what Jesus was talking about. If you go to the Old Testament, he had made provision for those who lived too far away to bring a lamb with them, that they could bring cash with them and they could purchase the lamb there in the sanctuary. They could purchase the lamb on the temple grounds uh, that they would then offer. And what Jesus was talking about was there were those who saw a great business opportunity and they were ripping people off. So Jesus wasn't annoyed about the exchange of funds. He was annoyed about the fact they were crooked and what they were doing. And so he's cleaning up stuff that needed to be cleaned up. And when Jesus comes into the corporate church, he's going to clean things up. And when revival breaks in a congregation, one of the things that happens is Jesus begins to expose junk. He begins to expose sin. Uh, I got to be really careful now. This this next illustration. Uh, it didn't happen in this nation. Okay, I'll just leave it that way. But I was in a situation where God had broken out in a church uh, and and became an ongoing visitation from God. And in the process of that, uh, they were approaching their annual business meeting. And the pastor became aware that there were things that had been taking place in the business department uh, that was not exactly being done properly. There was some mismanagement of funds that was taking place. uh, And he said, interestingly, it was in the atmosphere of revival that things began to be exposed. Same church had an individual on staff uh, at that church who said to me on one occasion that they were very concerned lest they do something that would be offensive to the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I, you know, at first I thought, wow, that, that's kind of cool. This guy's, then what I discovered later was the dude was living in sin and he knew it. He was living an immoral lifestyle and his concern was he was about to get exposed, which he did. When revival begins to move, God will always begin to clean the church up. And so it's not unusual. It doesn't surprise me any longer when God begins to move in a place on a corporate level that God does begin to expose stuff that may be there because before he can finish doing what he wants to do, Jesus has to clean the church up. But that's not just corporate. That becomes personal. You see, when Jesus wants to come to your house, when he wants to come and live inside of your life, he he loves you just like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like you are. This is not in my notes. I probably shouldn't say this, but... You know, a couple's getting married and they they look at each other with this incredible, you know, love in their eyes and they have found the person that is perfect. And they want to spend the rest of their life with that person that is perfect. And then they get married and immediately they set about trying to change the person that was perfect. 
And we spend the rest of our lives uh, learning how this works out in relationships uh, and what does it mean as, as we discover that there's some things about ourselves that are not perfect. But we love that person and we wouldn't do anything else but be married to them. And when Jesus comes in, he loves you like he found you. But he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. And so what begins to take place is he begins a process of bringing cleansing into our lives. And sometimes that is not fun. Sometimes when he begins to do a work inside of us, it's miserable. It doesn't feel good. You don't like it what is taking place. Yes, God, can you go bother somebody else for a while? One pastor said to me during a, a, an outpouring of the spirit of multiple weeks at his church, said, we've never seen our people becoming this clean before God. Because something was happening as the spirit of the Lord was moving and even little things that before that they would overlook, now they no longer could. Because now those things began to bother them. In fact, in one place, I was hearing stories of people who had gone to the grocery store, had gone home and realized that they had taken from the grocery store the pen that had been given to them to write a check with. That's back when they were still writing checks. And, 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 and now they've got home and realized they had this 39-cent pen in their pocket. And they felt so bad, they jumped back in the car, drove across town, spent two bucks to return a 39-cent pen. Why? Because there was something inside of them that was at work by the Spirit of God. And they were saying, I have to be clean. It wasn't that they're trying to impress somebody, but there was this work that the Spirit was doing, and they were saying, God, I must be clean before you. When Jesus comes into your house, he's not going to leave it like he finds it. And he begins to expose stuff even to us in our own lives that many times we did not know was there. I found it interesting the number of my friends, when, when we found ourselves in COVID situations where we were not able to do some of the things we had you know, been accustomed to doing, season they discovered that God wanted to talk to them about them. And I found that was true. You know, for me, that you know, I could be very, very busily involved with ministry and preparation for ministry and preparing to preach and traveling and all of that. But there came a moment where God began to say, I want to talk to you about you. Not about how you're ministering. I want to talk to you about you. About stuff on the inside of you. Things that for him was important. You see, we had this, this concept off that says, well, you know, if they didn't really know about it, it wasn't a big deal. God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and that's why he wants to deal with you. Because he does understand there's some things about your heart that you have not realized yet. Because if I don't deal with stuff, it begins to get larger and larger inside of me until it begins to take control of my life. And that's why you deal with stuff when it's still small before it becomes huge in your life. And so the Spirit of the Lord comes, Jesus comes into his house and says, I've saved you, you belong to me, you're in my family, but now I've got some stuff to do inside of you. Why? Because I'm trying to make you look like me. 
That's his purpose for your life, that you be shaped and made into the image of Jesus Christ. The book of Romans makes it clear that the will of God for you is you become like Jesus. I have, I've done a lot. I know some find this hard to believe. I actually was young once, and I used to do a lot of youth ministry. And I've probably spoken to 60, 70,000 young people over the years. And I've had them often ask me, what is the will of God for my life? Which usually means, yes, who am I going to marry? <laughs> you know, that's, but, but I tell people, I can tell you absolutely the will of God for your life. I know what it is. I don't even have to get a prophetic word. I already know what the will of God is for your life. It is that you be conformed to the image of his dear son. And from his perspective, that is more important than where you live. That is more important than where you work. And that is more important than who you are married to. Because if you become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the rest of it will begin to come in place. It will begin to be what it should be. And so God said, what I want to do is I want to clean up the house. Now, what he really prefers to do is do it gently. John Wesley said that when God speaks to us, he begins with a whisper. But if we don't listen to the whisper, he shouts. And if we don't listen to the shout, he will shake us because he wants to bring the cleansing. And so there are moments in our life if we are, if we are tuned in to him, he will whisper to us. And say, so here is something right now in your life that doesn't please me. You see, can I understand there's something about the nature of sin itself that is offensive to God? It is not sin because the church got together and had a vote on it. <laughs> you know, with all due respect you know, to Bill Sabritsky and the sin list, it is not that there was a, a committee got together and created a list of sins and said, well, let's call this stuff sin. No, it was on the list because it was offensive to God Almighty. Have you ever had somebody offend you and they didn't know they had offended you? Happens all the time. Where people say something, or you know, maybe not quite that dramatic, it's the way they drove. <laughs> And they don't know who you are, and it wasn't anything personal concerning you, but they just did something, and you have taken offense at the way they drive. In fact, you're mumbling yourself, that, who gave that person a license? They should have had their license stripped away from them. They are a hazard to our nation. And they don't have a clue. And you see, there are moments in our life where they go, well, Lord, I didn't, I didn't know that was wrong, so I don't really have to deal with it, right? And he says, no, it was offensive to me. You know, you weren't aware yet that that attitude was offensive to me. You weren't aware yet that action was offensive to me. You weren't aware yet that those things that you did were something that bothered me. He said, but now I'm making, and this is why in the Old Testament, you'll find God made provision for them to offer the sacrifices for the sin that they had done that was not intentional. Translations call it the unintentional sin. It wasn't that they set out, I'm going to sin against God. No, just in the process of living, they were doing things that were violating what it was that God wanted. And so God began to say, I'm going to make provision so when you become aware that what you have done is offensive to me, then we can get it straightened out. 
Well, you know, God, it shouldn't be offensive to you because I didn't mean anything by it. Listen, there's a lot of people that are suffering consequences in their lives because of things that others did to them that didn't mean anything by it. You know, any, anyone think from the serious accident where somebody spends the rest of their life without a, a part of their body because somebody did something stupid and they paid the penalty for it. Or individuals who have lived much of their life dealing with, with something they overheard. Now, here's one, okay? This is a personal one, and, and, I don't, and this was not sin. But when I was a kid, my parents decided to give me voice lessons. Maybe that was sin, I don't know. But they decided... <laughs> to give my brother and I voice lessons. And, um, and, it was, and, and the instructor was a professor of music at this Bible college. And uh, after the voice lesson, you know, they, they sent us off somewhere and I decided I needed to visit the necessary room. And so I'm on my way down the hallway exploring to find the men's room and I happened to walk by this office that the door was slightly open and inside was the music instructor speaking to my parents. They did not know that I'm passing by outside. And the instructor says to my parents, now your younger son, that'd be my brother, he has almost perfect hearing. He really does. He can sing all four parts of a male quartet, pick up his trombone and play the harmony line. I mean, he just, he's annoying. <laughs> he said, your older son, that would be me, he's tone deaf. <laughs> oh, thank you, you know. Now, my wife would argue the point. She would say, and she did years later, you are not tone deaf. You play your trumpet by ear. You are not tone deaf. You're just tone lazy. But I lived for years struggling with that statement somebody made who never intended to do something that would hurt me, but I was still living with the consequences. And when I sin, when I do something to my brother, my sister, and the Lord, it has an impact on our Heavenly Father. When I do something in a relationship this way, it has an effect on my relationship this way. And even if I don't think it's a big deal, he does. <laughs> Flashpoint. If he thinks it's a big deal, you had better think it's a big deal. If it's important to him, that it just became important to you. And so Jesus is going to his house, and he sees that there's stuff in that house that need to be cleaned up. And so they weren't prepared to just pick up their stuff and move out, so he had to help them. So he prefers to whisper to us, but if we don't pay attention, he will go to the next level. He'll shout. He'll shake you. Why? Because he's concerned for you. And he is willing to risk your emotions, your personal feelings in the next 10 minutes because he's concerned about where you'll be in 100 years. You see, we tend, to, we tend to be like our little children who they have no concept of time. You know, it feels like forever for them. It's been two minutes since they last asked you the question, but now they're asking it again. How long till we get there? You, know, you just want to tape their mouths. But God has big pictures. 
And he is aware not only of what you're experiencing now, he knows what it is that is in front of you. He knows what it is if you don't deal with what's going to happen. And so he will say, I will do what I need to do to get your attention to talk to you. So if you listen at the whisper, he can deal with it at the whisper. But if you don't deal with it there because he's concerned, he'll shout. He will risk offending you if he can save you. So that individual who's outside of the kingdom of God has not given their life to Jesus yet. There are moments that the Lord would really rather speak gently and sweetly and kindly to them, but there's some of them he has to slap first to get their attention. It's the gentleman that came into a meeting I was preaching. He's sitting on the next to back row and he is shaking. Now, we're only on the second song, and, and, but I knew this was not one of those bless you shakes. Okay, this is not one of those he is feeling the presence of God and is awesome and his body can't handle what's happening. No, this is one of those he is feeling the presence of God and scared the daylights out of him. And he is shaking under conviction. And I turned to the pastor and I said, you know, there are people in this room ready to get saved right now. He said, don't mess it up with your preaching. Thank you. You know, I appreciate the confidence. I got up and gave a salvation altar call on the second song, and I was 11, 12 people ran from where they were to the altor, gave their lives to Jesus. Told you how important my sermon was. <laughs> you know, it's like, just get out of the way, preacher. We're ready to get saved. And that guy was among them, and we found out this was his story. He was one of the leading drug dealers in the city. He'd been 20 plus years since he had been in the house of God. He had grown up in a Pentecostal environment, but been away from the Lord for all of these years, dealing drugs in the city. And on this Saturday night, he had been sitting in his lounge, laying, uh, resting on the couch, and God spoke to him. Now, he does not know if it was audible or not. He just knows he heard God. And God said this to him, be in my house tomorrow. Give your life to me, or I will never speak to you again. Uh, the shaking had started. Now, I know some people say, God doesn't say that to people. Don't tell Jeff that. Okay? Because he heard the voice of God. And he made it to service the next day and got to the altar, and he was forgiven by Jesus for the junk in his life, and Jesus began to clean him up, baptized him in the Holy Spirit, called him to preach, did an incredible work inside of his life. But it did involve some shouting and some shaking. So I say to people, listen, why don't you respond while he's still whispering? You know, don't, don't let him get to that other stuff. Just say, God, I want to be very sensitive to you. So, Lord, as soon as you begin to say to me, this really bothers me. As soon as I see this in your Lord, I just want to come and say, Lord, would you make me to be clean? Because I do want to be like Jesus. Because that really, a part of the fact is God's will for my life is it's the only hope the world has is that you and I become so much like Jesus that the devil is confused. Because wherever he looks, he sees Jesus. And he can't tell the original from the duplicate. 
because we'll be made into his image. So he'll clean you up. Let him do that. The second thing, I'll be quicker on this one. The second thing that Jesus did in Matthew chapter 21, when he went to his house, when he went to his father's house, went to the temple complex, he healed those who needed healing. When Jesus goes to his house, he brings healing. It's just what he does. It's a part of his nature. So the lame and the blind came to him in the temple complex, and they got healed. May I, say to, may I say to us, it's all right for us to ask Jesus to heal us? Do I have all of the answers to the healing questions? No. I, I've seen people get healed by God while I was explaining to him why he shouldn't heal them. I, I know you're more spiritual than that, but, but I, I, I have prayed for people in an altar, and I'm thinking, Lord, this person really, you know, they need to get their act together. And God healed them. And meanwhile, down the line, there's this person that I think is, you know, more holy. And they have got healed yet. And I'm like, person. <laughs> he has compassion. And what he wants to do is he wants to bring healing. But it's not just physical healing. Now, thank God for physical healing. It becomes... A, a, often a way of opening people's heart and attention to the Lord. But some of the greatest needs that some people have for healing is not physical. It's emotional. It's coming out of stuff that's taking place in their lives and the pain that they are carrying over things that somebody said to them or an event that happened so many years ago. At the risk of not being delicate enough there are ladies who carry traumatic events that have happened so many years ago. I was ministering South Texas, 80-some-year-old lady standing at the altar. And she begins to explain to me that she was dealing, that the night before Jesus had healed her of something emotionally that she had struggled with for 70-plus years. She didn't define it but I was reasonably confident I knew what she was talking about. That as a little child, she had been molested. And all of the years of her life, she had lived with the pain of that. And now, the night before Jesus, in a moment's time, had healed her. At one point, I said, Lord, she's 80-some years of age. She's about to come home. You know, why'd you? And he said, because I didn't want her to have to wait any longer. Because I loved her, I wanted to minister. I don't understand all of the stuff that was going into that moment in her life, but I know this. Jesus wanted her made whole. And he wants you made whole. Regardless of what it is that's taking place in your life, Jesus wants you made whole. And he's patient in doing that. I was griping to God. I know, again, you're more spiritual than that, but I was griping to God. And I was griping about a particular ministry situation that I was involved with. A, again, I want to be careful how I word this, but somebody who had been struggling for years with things that had started happening when they were about three, four years of age. And all of their life, until the person got married, they had been on the receiving end 
of sexual abuse and physical abuse and things of this nature. And, and we had begun to minister to them quite by accident. You know, I'm praying for them at an altar. And Mike, honestly, I did not plan what happened. It was not on my agenda. I'm just standing in front of this lady and I heard myself say, you are accepted in the beloved. I couldn't have told you why I said that. It wasn't like walk up to that lady and say to her. I just, it just came out. And when I said it, what I got was a full-scale demonic reaction. No discernment needed. <laughs> this was not one of those, well, I wonder what's going on here. This was like, whoa, you know, and, and it led to a multi-year ministry into this individual's life. So at one moment, I was explaining to God, this should take place faster, which I still want stuff to take place faster. I want to see people get healed. And the Lord said to me, do you know what your problem is? I hate it when conversations with God start that way. You know, when, when I hear him say to my spirit, do you know what your problem is? It's like, okay, Lord, what's my problem? And he said, you're more concerned about your convenience than you are about her. He said, I'm concerned about her. He said, if I were to actually do in her life the way you want me to do it, she literally could not handle that. The change would be so dramatic that her psyche could not handle that level of change and it would actually shatter her. So, I'm going to heal her one step at a time until she can process it and all the divided parts of her life can begin to come back together and I'm going to make her whole because I've got the, whatever time is necessary. He said, I've got all of eternity to finish her. And I'm going to see to it that she is made whole because he said, that's what I want to do in her life. And kind of like, if you don't like the way in which it's happening live and good, get over it. Because this isn't about you. And so there are some moments and situations that he steps in and in a moment's time, everything is done. And there are other situations he says, I understand what you don't understand. And I've never forgotten the big picture. I know where I'm going with you. And I'm going to heal you. But I want to do it in such a way that you sustain that healing. That there is that transformation. And you learn the principles. Because you see, there are some people that have watched God touch them and heal them dramatically. But they never learn the principles of God's word. And they have difficulty keeping that which God has done for them. And so what he wants to do is he not only wants to heal you, but he also wants to teach you his word so that you can be sustained in the healing, which is one of the reasons it's important to be in God's house where you can begin to get that instruction. So when Jesus came to his house, he found it was a mess. And he didn't give up on the house, he cleaned it up. And when Jesus got to his house, he found there were people there that were broken emotionally, physically, and he said, what I want to do is heal them. Wow. It's what he wants to do for you. It's what he wants to do through you in the lives of others. One last thing that happened when Jesus came to his house in the text, there was incredible worship that happened. 
the children began to cry out in worship to the Lord. Now notice there were two responses. The religious people did not like what Jesus did. It annoyed them what Jesus did. There's always somebody that doesn't like what Jesus did. Or they don't like the way in which he did it. Lord, that's not the way that I think it should be done. And so the religious leaders took great offense over the children worshiping the Lord. I will challenge myself. When I find myself annoyed in church, I don't automatically assume that I'm right and the rest of the world is out of step. <laughs> Heard about the mother that went to visit her son in the army. She said, my son was the only one in step. Some of you will catch that later. <laughs> so I never make the assumption. If something bothers me, I start saying, Lord, what's going on here? Is there something, Father, that's wrong there, or is there something inside here? Because maybe you're just doing something in a way that I'm not accustomed to, and I don't like the way they're worshiping. I don't like the way that you healed that person. I don't like the way you minister to that person. That's not the way that I think you should minister to them. Over the years, I, I, I've learned this over the years. I, I, I've learned, or at least I'm trying to learn, not to think I have to build a particular methodology and that Jesus has to always do it that way. I was in a service one night, and I could not have told you why I thought I should do this. In fact, looking back, it was weird. But I, I picked up this green cloth, and I'm hitting people with this green cloth. And they're getting healed left and right. And after, somebody said to me, do you know what the color green represents in the Bible? I said, nope. I said, nope, not a clue. They said, healing. And that for whatever reason, it pleased the Lord in that service for me to take this green cloth and touch people with it. And when I would touch them with the green cloth, he healed them. Now, that's never happened since then. I'm not opposed to it. It just hasn't happened since then. And I've learned over the years, there are moments the Spirit of God says, I'm going to do something. It will not make any sense to you, but it will to the person in fact, I was standing in front of a lady one time, and I said, I, I said, this does not make any sense to me. I don't understand it. But I describe it as I have this sensation of like you're swooping. And I get the sense of God's got this big smile of pleasure on his face, and I have not a clue what that means. She looked at me and laughed. And she said, what you just described is the emotion that I feel when I'm skiing. And she said, and what I love to do more than anything else in the world is freestyle ski. And when you've just said that God takes great delight, great pleasure, he's smiling at the pleasure. I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, it, I didn't have to know what it meant. It wasn't the word for me. God just said, you tell her this. There are moments that God says, I'm going to minister, and you're not going to understand why you're doing this. You just do it. Don't take offense at the way Jesus chooses to minister to people. One lady said to me one night, she's looking at somebody on the floor. She said, my God doesn't do that. I was tempted to agree with her. 
You see what the God of the book did? Still does? So I've also learned this. If God wants them on the floor, fine. If he doesn't want them on the floor, fine. You know, that's not my call. That's his. I just want them to get ministered to. And when Jesus comes to his house, there will be expressions of worship and expressions of spirit activity that he may forget to check with you about. <laughs> I, you know, I just find that every now and then it's like God forgets to check in with me and see if it's okay that he does this. He has this really weird idea. He thinks he's God. <laughs> and he thinks this is his house. And he can do in his house what he wants to do. And he thinks that I'm his house. And he can do in me what needs to be done. So they didn't like what Jesus did, and then they didn't like the way the kids were worshiping. And you've heard me say this when people say, I didn't like the way they were worshiping. And I'll say, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. You know, you know, I mean, that's if you didn't like it, that's fine. You were not the object. I was worshiping him. I also want to say to a few people, I know that you're offended at the way that they were worshiping. Have you ever considered that they were offended the way you are not worshiping? But that would be really, really confrontive. And we're, we're Kiwis and we don't do that. I was preaching to a bunch of preachers here in New Zealand once, and afterwards, somebody said, I know why God brought you. He said, because that needed to be said, and we couldn't say that to each other. <laughs> he said, but you just got up there and said it. Jesus wants to visit your house. My mother used to say this to me, always leave a place better than you found it. Always leave a place better than you found it. That's been a, a good little principle I've tried to follow as an evangelist. To leave a place at least as good a shape as it was when I got there. And better. Well, for staying someplace, to leave it better than it was when I got there. Jesus practices that. He always leaves a place better than it was when he got there. So if we will open the doors of his corporate church, he'll leave it better than it was. If we'll open the doors of this personal house to him and we'll give him permission, he will leave it better than he found it. Will the journey always be fun? No. But it will be worth it. And you'll look back and you'll say, I understand now. Worship team, why don't you reassemble if you would. One of the things that I always wanted to do as a kid growing up when God called me to preach, I. I wanted to preach the annual 
camp meeting. Now, camp meeting in the States and in the stream I grew up in, it was the, the big summer gathering where you know, the high-powered speakers would be there and hundreds and thousands of people in some cases would, would come. We'd spend in from a week to 10 days, just church three times a day. And if you, if you ever were invited to preach one of those things, you had arrived. You are big time now. So I didn't say anything to people, but that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to preach. And we, we did kids' camps and then started doing youth camps. And, and then the day came. I got my first invitation to preach family camp. I was, I was excited because I knew when you preached the first one, the doors start opening. And about that time, revival broke open. And God messed up my schedule big time. And we had just finished up, really, we closed too early, a series of meetings. We had finished seven weeks, 300 people had gotten saved. And we had brought the meetings to a close because I was scheduled to start camps. It's one thing to say to a church, can you delay a week or two weeks? But it's another thing to say to an entire state. You know, 250 churches, can you delay? And so we had closed, and, and that last night this lady came to me, and she said, I think I have a, 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 a word from the Lord for you. I said, okay. I said, I'm listening. She said, well, it's a question. I said, okay. He just wants to know, did you get his message yet about the camps next summer? Arrow to the heart. Yeah. Well, he said to tell you that you're going to be tempted, you know, to, to not do it. So the next day I got on the telephone and I called every camp I was to speak at the next summer and canceled them with one exception. And I didn't call the big camp. I, I went into negotiation mode. Lord, I can just slip away for three days and preach that and then back wherever I happen to be if you're moving in revival. Three days, God, you know, it'll be, it'll be okay. And the next morning, that superintendent called my office and I picked up the message and went like this. If you can't preach at our kids' camps, you can't preach. Our big camp, I cancel you. Bang! And I heard the Spirit say, I said all the camps. Fast forward. We're preaching in this, at the end of the world place called New Zealand. You ever heard of it? And we're preaching in this church where a lot of the women had these little Pentecostal buns on the back of their head. And a lot of the men, they were still wearing these, you know, suits with white shirts and skinny black ties and had Smith Wigglesworth hats on their head. And I am thinking, Jesus, how did you get me in here? What am I doing in this place? And then Jesus decided to come to his church again. He'd already been showing up in that place. He just said, I'm about to increase it. And 20 weeks later, 800 people are giving their lives to Jesus. 
and there were people having encounters that I still hear about. And my wife said to me one day, you do realize, don't you? Had you said yes to those camps? We would be closing these meetings and we would be on our way back to the States. And that same time frame, I walked into a meeting in the Philippines where in a week's time, something like 1,700 people responded to the invitation to ask Jesus into their lives and 300 got baptized in the Holy Spirit in one night. Sermon wasn't that good, but Jesus had walked in. And I very distinctly got that impression from him. This would not have been able to have happened had you not allowed me to visit my house and do in you what I needed to do. Had you insisted on going your own direction over there, I would have let you. And you would have missed this. And I thought many times, God, I came so close to missing the journey that you wanted my wife and I to go on. Because somewhere when you come to the house, you don't always explain to us what it's going to look like at the end. You just start working. And somewhere, trust has to set in. And I say, I don't understand where you're going, but I'm going to trust you. I would not exchange anything for the journey of the last 23 years for my wife and myself. Had you said to me 25, 26 years ago that I was going to spend more than half of the rest of my life outside the U.S., I would have said really bad pepperoni on that pizza. But I look back and I realize when I let him come to his house to cleanse me, to do the work that needed to be done in me, I was actually creating the possibilities of what he was going to do in the future. Brendan, he was going to continue to love me, but I would have missed something incredible. And God would have gotten somebody else to do it. You know, I'm, I'm not so egotistical as to think I'm the only person. You know, there's always somebody else on the bus. But because I let him. Tonight, will you let him come to his house? Would you let him do the cleansing that needs to take place inside of your life? Would you let him reveal by his spirit those things in you that bother him? He will not overload you. He will only tell you what you can deal with right now. And then just when you think you've arrived, you'll say, good, we got that one taken care of. Let's take a look at the next one. And the journey he will take you on will be an amazing journey as he makes you like himself. And then he says, now, let me start a process of using you. I'm going to heal you. And then I'm going to use you for others to get healed. 
will minister to you through them, through you to them. And you're going to have these incredible moments. There is a very real sense that so much of my life and my wife's life has been the privilege of going from one moment of an encounter with him to another. Not every revival that I preach breaks wide open. I wish it did. But God's allowed me to be in some things that are extraordinary. And I have enough sense to know it wasn't my talents. I'm quite average. But even beyond that, just the moments of intimacy with Him that have come. Just as I seek to say, Jesus, you're welcome to come to your house and do in me and with me what you want to do. My satisfaction in life is not based upon the places I travel, certainly not based on landing in Wellington. That's just an added bonus. <laughs> and no rails. <laughs> the satisfaction comes out of the relationship with Him. You see, literally, I remember saying to the Lord one day, and I am coming in for a landing, Lord, if I never see anything else the rest of my life, will You have allowed me to see and to experience I don't have anything to complain about. And the very next week, he said to me, you haven't seen anything yet. And two weeks after that, I walked into what's continuing to take place in the state of Indiana. And I get to watch again something he's doing. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to join me in saying to him, I'm an open vessel, Lord. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And let him have the opportunity to cleanse you. And then say, now, Lord, those things in me that need healing, Lord, I'm open. I want you to heal me so that I can minister to others. And then we're just going to love on Jesus. Would you stand with me? There have been moments when I have felt constrained by the Spirit of God to do things that are weird. I remember the service when the Lord said to me, I want you to go eyeball to eyeball with everybody in the auditorium and ask them if they're going to heaven or hell. Thank you. That was pretty intense that night. 
When it got done, everybody said they're going to heaven. I said, God, I don't understand that. My wife said, didn't you see that bunch jump up and run out of the auditorium? When you started over there, they ran out that door. And then I was preaching on the street corner in Argentina, and the Lord said, I want you to go eyeball to eyeball with the entire crowd and ask them. And I did, and nobody responded. And I thought, man, that was a, what was that about, Lord? I really blew that one. About a month later, I got an email from a missionary. He said, you've got to hear this story. He says, at a church, he goes in Rawson, Argentina last night. He said, that's the town you were in. He goes, the pastor said, you see that group of young people over there? He said, yeah. He said, they were all standing on the street corner that day when that American evangelist asked him that question when I bought an eyeball with him. He said, they all walked into my church last week because they wanted to find the church that had sponsored that because God had been talking to them. They've all committed their lives to Jesus. There are some moments, he has said, it's going to be intense. But there are other moments, it's like he says, I don't really have to do that because these people's heart is in a place that I can speak gently to them. And my sense tonight is that most of us in this room, he really doesn't need to shake us. Most of us in this room, he'll whisper to us. And so I'm going to invite you to join me. And we're going to come to the front, not because God can't talk to us at our seats, he can. And I've been in a few meetings where I felt like the Lord said, if you move those people, you're going to interrupt me, so leave them exactly where they're at. Let me do what I need to do. And I thought about doing a variety of things, but I just feel like I want to invite us to come and stand before him and just give him permission. Jesus, you're getting ready to do something huge in your house in New Zealand. You're getting ready to do something huge in your house, the one that gathers together on Downer Street. Jesus, you want to do something huge in this house that I live in. So I just want to come and give you permission to make the house clean. And then let him run with it from there. Some of us are going to come and say, Jesus, I'm broke, not financially. I'm broke emotionally. I'm just devastated. And he's going to say, I know. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to minister to you. And when I'm done, my, my younger brother came to the floor with a rebound in a basketball, last practice before the season began, hit the floor, tore his knee up. The surgeon said after the surgery, if you will do what I tell you to do in the rehabilitation, when I'm done, the knee that you injured will be stronger than the knee that you never injured. There are moments in your life that Jesus is saying to you, if you'll let me do in your life what I want to do, when I'm done healing you, 
you will be stronger than if you had never been in the pain. And because of the journey I've taken you on, you will be able to minister to some that nobody else can touch because you will have been where they are at and you will be able to say to them, I not only know where you're at, but I can help you know where you're going to go. So tonight, Jesus wants to continue a process of healing. And his presence is going to come so sweet. You let him. You love on him. Can we do that tonight? Is that as clear as mud? Altar ministry team, I'm going to give you permission as you feel led to circulate. Pastoral staff, as you feel led, circulate. If you don't feel led, do what you feel in your spirit to do. But I'm not going to specify at this point if it's getting cleaned up, getting healed up, or just coming to love on Jesus. Can we come for a few minutes at the front? And then we'll hang out afterwards. God bless you.